coming up on Philosophy Talk. When you have a hammer, the actual part of your brain that sees itself in the world extends. The extended mind. Is the body just a tool for the mind or part of the essence of the mind? Take the very idea of thought itself. It's a metaphorical idea based on the body. If you have me in mind, do you have me in your head? Perception is never passive. Every idea you have is physically there in your brain. Our guest is cognitive scientist George Lakoff. The same parts of the brain that are used for acting, for perceiving, for moving, for hearing, are also used for imagining, seeing, moving, and hearing. Recorded in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater in Berkeley. Thought itself and concepts come out of the embodiment, out of your interactions with the world, and out of the way your brain is structured via its connection to the body. The Extended Mind, coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today we're coming to you from the Marsh Theater in Berkeley, California, the Bay Area's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Welcome everyone to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today, the extended mind. Well, you know, I think a lot of people will find that puzzling as a description of a philosophical topic of some interest. How, how so, John? How do you think? Why? Well, most people are pretty clear what the mind is. It's the seat of thought, consciousness, emotion, that sort of stuff. That sounds about right. And we know what it is to be extended. It's to take up space, to be stretched out through space and maybe over time. So what's exactly the issue then if we know both those things? Well, the question is what's not the issue? I mean, Descartes distinguished what he called the thinking substance, the mind, from what he called extended substance, material objects that occupy space. That's not a very trendy view these days. That's what's called Cartesian dualism, the idea that the mind isn't extended. But most people think it is extended. Pretty much it's the brain. So are we just beating that dead horse again? Well, now look, even if we grant that the mind does occupy space, there's still a big question left. Just where in space is the mind? Oh, let me think. How about between the skull? The mind is just the brain working, hence the mind resides in the skull, QED. Well, but you're thinking of the mind in the wrong way. You're thinking of it as a little black box locked up inside our heads. It's something separate and distinct from the body in which it's contained and separate and distinct from the environment that surrounds the body. Well, I'm thinking of it as something between our skull that is made to order to control a body in a certain environment. But, yes, basically you're right. What's wrong with that? Well, for one thing, it's actually a very Cartesian way of thinking about the mind, except for the part where you're willing to grant that the mind is a material thing. But still, by making it entirely separate from the body, you're really just repeating Descartes' uh, mistake. Oh, really? Uh, that's a pretty big, big except, right? Uh, wh what's wrong with thinking of the mind as separate and distinct from the body? Seems like sort of common sense. Well, because if these folks who believe in extended or embodied or situated cognition are right. It's part of the essence of the mind to be embodied and situated. The mind, body, and environment, that's not three separate and entirely distinct things, but it's one massively interactive, massively interconnected whole. That, that's what's wrong. Poppycock. Uh, look, I live in a house. The house is in a city. The city's in a country. All these things fit together, work together. I couldn't live nearly so well not in a house. 
That doesn't mean that I and my house are one massively interacted and interconnected whole. That's just gibber talk. Well, but look, look, look. I want you to do something for me. I, I want you to reach for that bottle of water and take it into your hand. I want you to see if you can do that. All right. I'm reaching for it, and I'm taking it into my hand. What's your point? Well, you, you pulled that off quite effortlessly. I want to congratulate you. But look, I want to tell you something. The reason you were able to do so is because, well, the human hand is a really cool thing. Really cool thing. Well, it's got the opposable thumb. I've heard that that's important. Yeah, that's a cool thing, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the collapsibility of the hand. Because of the way the hand naturally collapses, you didn't have to actually do a lot of calculating to grab that bottle. You didn't have to independently calculate a trajectory for each individual finger, for example. Well, uh, I see your point. All my brain had to do was calculate the trajectory that got my hand into the rough vicinity of the bottle. And then from that point on, the hand just sort of took over automatically, collapsing around the bottle until I could grab it. Right, right, exactly. So now you're getting the point. When the body moves, some of the work of making it move in just the way it's done is some of that work is done by that little computer in the skull that we call a brain. That's true. And sure, some of the work is done by the body itself. And if you think of the mind as whatever is ultimately responsible for movement, then you can't just identify the mind with the brain, with the inner computer. Well, I don't know. I mean, suppose I tell my computer to print a document, and then the printer prints the document, and I say, oh, I guess the computer's really part of the printer, or the, something like that. They're part of an interconnected whole, blah, 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 blah. It's really simple. There's two different things that work in tandem. What's the problem? Well, look, no, it's not two different things. They're interconnected whole, and it's not an either-or thing either. When you're talking about the mind, we're talking about a complex, about the brain-body complex, and there's no fixed boundary between the mind and the body. Okay, I mean, I'll play along. You've either drunk the Kool-Aid or you're pretending awfully well to have done so, and I can do the same. I can see that if you start down this route, there won't be any reason to stop at the boundaries of the body. The structure of the environment is at least as important to the nature of the cognition as the structure of the body. And we can think of external memory aids that we have nowadays, like my wonderful iPhone that has a calculator and a syncable calendar built in. Exactly. They're just part of my extended mind. Exactly. Have, I got, have I got it? Have I got you it? You got it exactly uh. right, John. Technology, modern technology, it's a cool thing because one of the things that it enables us to do, it enables us to offload onto the environment, the built environment, cognitive tasks that in earlier times the brain had to perform all on its own. Modern technology extends the mind right out into the world. That gives us a lot to think about. But joining us to discuss the extended mind, we're lucky to have Berkeley's own George Lakoff co-author of Philosophy in the Flesh, The Embodied Mind, and Its Challenge to Western Thought. And we want to offload part of this conversation to our audience here at the Marsh. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, investigates how embodied cognition applies to the virtual world. She files this report. Jaron Lanier is a man of varied talents. He's a musician. When you learn to improvise at the piano and you get good at it, there's this moment when you find your hands seemingly coming up with these solutions to voice leading and harmony problems. But Lanier's also a writer and a researcher at University of Southern California and at Microsoft Research. Lanier is considered the father of virtual reality, and he was among the first to develop and become an avatar, a computer graphic used to represent a person in a virtual world. 
Back in the 80s, Lanier wanted to create avatars to allow more than one person to inhabit a virtual world. So the team developed bodysuits and gloves with sensors that would detect movement. And it worked. We were able to put on these uh, full body suits and turn into avatars. It was extraordinary. The first avatar was flawed, but Lanier said that made it even more interesting. I remember being this avatar and looking at my hand and there being a bug that caused my hand to be very, very big, like bigger than the city of Berkeley. He found himself surrounded by his own hand in a virtual world. Strangely, he could control it and hit targets, which surprised him at first. That functionality, the fact that you could just gracefully turn into this totally bizarre avatar, really was intriguing and, and kind of surprising. This discovery allowed people to transform into exotic avatars like lobsters, dinosaurs, and even molecules. You learn to manipulate claws you don't actually have and fly like a prehistoric bird. This technology laid the groundwork for games like Nintendo's Wii and Microsoft's Kinect. Lanier saw this and started theorizing about homuncular flexibility, the idea that the brain has a sort of embedded map of the body that allows it to control the body. Lanier pictures an impish figure stretched across the brain. This impish creature is called a homunculus, and the reason it's impish is that some parts of the body that have a lot of nerve connections, like the thumb, for instance, are disproportionately big, and so you have this really sort of icky-looking creature. When we transform into avatars that are not human, our brains must quickly figure out a new map to control a new body. And this process, according to Lanier, is kind of a trip. The fact that you can learn to control a body that's not even connected like a human body is really interesting. But why should our brains learn to control bodies that are totally unlike our own? Lanier credits evolution. With some of the really exotic things, you do wonder if maybe some old circuitry might survive from a time when uh, an ancestor of our brain was controlling an ancestor of ours that had a different uh, body form and may maybe different degrees of freedom, different limbs and so forth. And that led to really exotic discoveries, like turning the human body into a molecule or even a mathematical equation or computer code. But what can a person do as a molecule that a person can't do as a person? <laughs> well, what we really want to do is be able to think like a molecule. So the way molecules are is they're always jiggling around. They're thermal. And they jiggle through these degrees of freedom. And so if you can map your body to the ways a molecule can be. So instead of it jiggling, you just dance in order to explore the different spaces it can get into. And then you can interact with other molecules. Lanier believes that by becoming a molecule, students will better understand what molecules are and how they function. And this kind of embodied cognition could open our minds in ways we never would have imagined. We might be able to have thoughts we wouldn't otherwise have had. And of course, we don't know yet if it might lead in that direction. But that's the sort of thing one dare not think, but yet one's compelled to. Like, if we change the way we think, might we think something new? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Ash. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.